If you're looking for the next best thing to invest in, try investing in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early, which could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. So invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Visit GoForward.com to learn more about how Forward can help you manage your long-term health risks for one flat monthly fee. That's GoForward.com. It's no secret that writing can be lonely work, but does it really have to be? Whether you're full-time, part-time, or just starting out, you'll get insights into the tricks, tips, and production habits of writers from every level of the biz. From best-selling authors to those launching their first novels, you're sure to be in the company of friends as we encourage great writers to divulge and share their secrets. This is the Great Writer Share Podcast with your host, best-selling author, Daniel Wilcox. Hello and welcome to the Great Writer Share podcast with me, Daniel Wilcox, where every week I call up a writer friend of mine and pick apart their brain for a full 60 minutes in order to share their wisdom and help level up your author career. Today's date is the 4th of September, or as I've got it on my screen, thanks to no autocorrect, September. And I've been lucky enough today to have been joined by the wonderful king of collaboration, fiction and podcasting, Mr. Jay Thorne. Uh, Jay is someone who has been quite inspirational on my own author journey. He's someone that I feel has uh, has all his ducks in a row, is, is producing some amazing stuff. He's a person who is efficient and he follows through with the things that he says he's going to do. And he's he's just an all-round amazing guy. Um, he's involved in a lot of stuff. You might know him as one of the lead hosts of the Career Author Podcast, um, the Horror Writers Podcast, the Intronauts. I mean, he's he's done so much stuff. And that's just in the podcasting world. Um, in today's episode, we go into things like how does Jay approach planning and creation of his books using his and his publishing partner, Zach Bohannon's very own three-story method. That's a very exciting one. Lots on that coming up. How becoming disciplined and nailing your systems can create instant results. And how he's approaching running a variety of author events, including his takeover of the Selmore Book Show Summit. That's very, very interesting. Um, I'm very, very excited to see what they do. And that's all coming in uh, 2020, all coming up. But before we do that, we're going to do a quick shout out to our patron page. We have no new patrons this week, but if you are interested in getting more value from the show, you can go over to www.patreon.com forward slash greatwritersshare, and there you can get anything from getting early access to the episodes, going into our private Slack group, uh, entry into our monthly giveaway, asking our guests questions. There's there's so much going on. Um, and we've got people over in the Slack group at the minute just chatting and just getting to know each other. And it's, it's an amazing community over there. Um, so it's definitely worth jumping in. And on that note, this month's giveaway is actually inspired by Jay and his conversation today, which is James Clear's Atomic Habits. Now, this is a book that I have read myself a couple of months ago. It's one that I got a crap ton of value from. It's um, If you're looking to systematize yourself, find ways to improve your productivity and just get more done, I highly recommend this book, even outside of the giveaway. But I am giving one away for free over on the Patreon page, so it's definitely worth checking it out. Um, so yeah, one more time, that's www.patreon.com forward slash great writers share. And now, without any further ado, let's get into the very wide-ranging conversation with the wonderful, the amazing, the irreplaceable, Jay Thorne. J, 
Jay Thorne is a top 100 author in horror, sci-fi, action and adventure and fantasy. He's one of the lead hosts of the Career Author Podcast alongside Zach Bohannon and the Writers Well Podcast alongside Rachel Heron, as well as a certified story grid editor, writing coach, a part-time radio host and musician. Jay is the indie king of collaboration, in my opinion, and now co-runs his publishing company, Multi-Universe Media, alongside Zach. Through this company, they publish post-apocalyptic fiction and host events which have taken budding, let me try that again, which have taken budding authors all across America. 2020 will also see their first writers' conference as they take over the Selmore Book Show Summit from indie superstars Jim Cookrell and Brian Cohen and host the first ever career author summit in Nashville. All of this being a roundabout way to say, welcome to the show, Mr. Jay Thorne. Thank you, Daniel. I'm so excited to talk to you today. I'm so excited to have you. We were, we were just saying before we started recording, I think it's been about a year and a half, maybe two years since you came on the old podcast um, with myself and Luke. And my first question really is, how have things changed for you in that time? <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, lot, lots of things have changed. I'm trying to remember even what was, what was going on back then. Uh, I think the biggest change is... Zach and I have kind of leveled up our game in a few different areas, and uh, we're we're doing more author events and and writer retreats on one on one side of the business, and on the other side, as you know, uh, we are starting to publish other writers under our Molten Universe Media House. Very exciting! You've got a lot going on, which kind of I'm I've been struggling to try and find a place to start because, like you said, you do have a lot going on, and I think. Last time we spoke, you were doing um, obviously a lot of the collaborations. You were starting to get more into the nonfiction stuff. Um, but I think one of the places that I do want to start, as I'm massively curious and a big proponent behind your method and what you're doing, is the three-story method, which you're currently working on with Zach. Yes. And with that, are you happy to give a little overview of what the three-story method is and what you're planning to deliver with that? Absolutely. We started this project, Zach and I, Probably about a year ago, he, he came to me, and Zach always has these questions that he asks, and when he asks them, they, sound, they, they seem very simple at first, <laughs> and then they turn into something else, and, and, and that's what I love about working with, a, a, with someone else, whether it's a, a collaboration or a co-writer, is you get these ideas um, that you wouldn't have had on your own, and, and I think Zach said, you know, we should record, uh, we should document our process, and I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, you know, our fiction writing process. And I said, the collaboration. He's like, no, no, the story process. Like, we, we have a certain way of, of developing a story and then writing it and publishing it, and we should document that. And I, and I thought about it, and, uh, and I, I immediately I thought, oh, another story methodology book. That's exactly <laughs> what the market needs, you know. And then and the, but the more we talked about it, uh, it, it really made sense. And, and there was so much of what I've learned from Sean Coyne and being a, a story grid editor that we were using in pre-production, but it didn't. It, it wasn't exactly the same way because Sean developed that as a revision tool. It's, it's not a uh, it's not a planning tool. But Zach and I had been you know planned I don't know 12, 15 books at this point, and and we developed our own system. So it started out where I emailed Sean and said, uh, "Hey, there's some story grid stuff I'd like to use in here. You know, do you have any recommendations on how to do that?" And he came back and said, "That sounds awesome. We'd love to publish it." So fast forward uh, six six to nine months, I guess, we've been working on it. And just recently, we kind of discovered that it was probably not a good publishing fit, uh, that that the way that Sean and Tim are running StoryGrid and publishing books and marketing them is just very different from the way Zach and I are doing it. And uh, it's not right or wrong or it's not a judgment. It's just a different way of doing it. 
And so we decided, uh, with, with Sean's blessing, that we were going to not publish it uh, with StoryGrid. And we sort of uh, changed the name to give it a little bit of distance from that universe. And, um, and we're calling it Three Story Method. And it's basically the process that we have uncovered. I'm not going to say created. We didn't create it. We uncovered it. Uh, and we're going to document that and, and share that with other writers. And really the most latest iteration of that has come from my revisiting of Aristotle's Poetics, which I think is a must-read book for any storyteller. I'll note that one down to, to give a bit of a read myself. I did hear you talking about this on the uh, the Career Author podcast last week. And um, yeah, it's definitely now on my my list to have a look at that. Yes. But I'm, I'm curious because I'm selfishly, I'm going to ask this question because I'm in the middle of trying to, uh, I guess, iron out what my writing process is. How did you go about creating this process? And, and at what point did you realize it was a fit for you? Because I imagine that there were probably some um, turnings at certain points where it maybe didn't didn't work in different ways. How have you gone about re- re- refining this this methodology? It's it's a great question, and it's something that uh, I, I don't know if you've experienced this, Daniel. But I know every time I write a book, I do it slightly differently. I don't yep. <laughs> necessarily follow the exact same process every time. So on one hand, you have you have sort of that approach where you're always tweaking, you're always iterating, you're always innovating. On the other hand, as you also know, when you co-write with somebody you need to have some type of process that you agree upon. Otherwise, you don't make any progress or you end up wasting a lot of words. And, and so I think what happened was, uh, you know, over time, Zach and I sort of developed this, this system. And, and, I, so, and some of it changes, but the core doesn't. And, and, and again, it wasn't until I went back and read Poetics that I realized a lot of stuff that we've been doing, has, storytellers have been doing for, for millennia. And, um, and, it, and it seemed like something that would benefit other people because um, writers tend to struggle with a process, whether you're a, a plotter or a pantser. Um, there's a, there's a um, component of writing that involves what may, uh, the technical people might call like project management or, or, or the corporate people might call it project management, where you, yeah. you have to, it's more than just writing the story. It's how do you get, how do you manifest the story in the world? And so I think... Uh, that that's really sort of where where three story method came from, and and we have enough titles that we've tested and it works, and uh, and, and we we shared earlier versions with you and some other writers uh, in sort of like a worksheet form as a way to just give give that process enough structure that you can uh, not be paralyzed by a blank page. Absolutely, and like you say, having um, used that methodology myself on uh, a project that we're currently working on, it's it's very, very useful to have those, those points. And obviously I'm not going to go into the whole methodology because that's your, your baby to unveil when the time comes. <laughs> um, but there's definitely a certain, it, it's a tried and true method. And I think even, um, in as far as there are mentions of obviously the Pixar approach to storytelling mm-hmm. in there, there's sort of other ways to look at it. And I think what you've done quite well and quite elegantly is, is brought all of these together into a methodology that can be accessible to a lot of people. Um, and I'm kind of, I'm looking forward to seeing how that rolls out in the future. Have you got sort of a timeline on when you're looking at, at launching, when you're looking at getting this out into the public eye? Yeah, we're we're currently uh, working on revisions right now, and there are a few components that I kind of have to go back and and rewrite uh, pretty much from scratch. But our original publication date was going to be I want to say March uh, when, when StoryGrid was going to publish it. It was going to be March. So it'll definitely be, it'll be March or sooner. Uh, so, you know, it depends. I, I'm thinking it might be earlier in 2020. Um, 
uh, but it, it, it's definitely going to be before March or sooner. Good way to bring in the new year. Yeah, it could be. It could be. And, and, <laughs> and you know, you also raise a good point too. I, I have a, I'm looking at a stack of books on my bookshelf right now. I read and researched uh, dozen, literally dozens of books on storytelling. Um, you know, everything from Vogler to Campbell to McKee to uh, Snyder. Um, and, and I, and so there are elements of all of these storytelling methodologies inside a three-story method. It's kind of like cherry picking the really best of the best in, in developing a streamlined process for storytelling. And that's one of the things I like about you is that there's always an element of, of research into everything you do. You don't, you never go into anything sort of empty handed and just, and just wing it. You seem to, when I, when I think of Jay Thorne, I always think of process and I think of someone who, uh, has his system sorted and sits down and, and, and sticks to, the things that he does day in, day out that, that produces results. Have you always been that way or is this something that's kind of come with, with the writing? Have you always been quite a, an organized, um, systematic person? Yeah, I wish I could say I did something to, <laughs> to, <laughs> to earn that, but I, I think it was just, you know, it, it was just one of the skills. I, I, I won't necessarily say I was born with it, but I, I think from a very early age, I was uh, always a very organized person. Uh, I, you know, one one of the downsides of sort of being um, an INTJ uh, introvert is that you live in your head a lot. And so I think uh, from the time I was I was a, a young student, all the way up through being a, a, a history major in college, is I've had this ability to step back and look at a big picture and break it down into smaller components. Uh, I'm not very good at talking at cocktail parties, and I'm socially <laughs> awkward, but I am good at project management. So, um, so I've had this sort of natural inclination to be able to take very complex things and, and make them manageable. And that started even in, in grade school, primary school, and high school where uh, homework assignments, you know, a lot of the kids would uh, procrastinate and they would leave that term paper until the night before and it would be this mess. And I would finish mine weeks in advance and, and no one could understand why. And they're like, why would you do that? And really, for me, it came down to a, a matter of pain. Uh, when I procrastinate and there's a deadline looming, that it becomes physically painful for me. I start to worry about it. I have this anxiety. And so I would rather plan out all the, all the steps that need to be done and do it ahead of time and avoid that, that pain that I know is coming. It, for me, it's, it's the sort of Damocles hanging over my head. So um, I do appreciate uh, you, you saying that about me. I do take a lot of pride in my process and my research. And I, and I think that is a lot of that is from being a trained historian. I, I'm just very, very jealous of it. I am definitely <laughs> one of the people that you described that I was never, I wasn't always the last minute person. I'd always put some work in. I get the wheel sort of slowly turning, but then I, w I was very deadline driven. Um, and it's only really been the last year or two, actually probably more so now that my son is born and particularly with my writing that I've now switched into the other way because I've seen the effects that actually those, those small steps each, each day can kind of take into the bigger project. So yeah, I've, I've flipped it around, but I'm I'm jealous I hadn't had that systematic look when I was a lot younger. Well, it's good that you had that uh, that level of self awareness that you were able to do that instead of continually fighting whatever system wasn't working for you. And I, when I when I talk to clients, one of the things I really try and stress with people is that there isn't a right way to write or publish. And anyone who's trying to sell you that. Um, you should be very wary of it. Uh, it. You know, all all of this is a very personalized process, and 
my friend and partner on the on the writer as well, Rachel Heron, always says that if you're finishing books, then it, then whatever you're doing is working for you. So I'm I'm always careful to say to people, here's how I think it, you could really improve your productivity, be more efficient, and really enjoy the process more. But if you're doing it your own way and you are satisfied with the results you're expecting to get, then keep doing it. It's working for you. And what would you say to a budding writer who maybe isn't on your spectrum of um, systematate, systematate, can't say that word, of organization <laughs> and uh, is, is trying to find a way to, to get to the end of their book? Maybe they're sort of the first chapter and they're floundering a bit. Would you have any advice for them to maybe get them on the right track and, and into the into the process? I'm a big proponent of using calendars, simple calendars in many ways. I mean, even a, a paper one you have on your wall um, and do some basic math. You know, if if you're a, a budding writer and let's say you your your goal is to is to uh, finish the first draft of a short novella or a novella at fifty thousand words. Uh, first thing you need to do is figure out on any given day how many words can you type, and, and if it's if you know if it's a hundred, fine. If it's a thousand, fine. It doesn't matter what what the number is, but if it's a thousand words, then then you say okay, it's going to take me fifty days, and you look at a calendar and you start marking off. Here's the days I'm going to write. Here's the days I'm not going to write. And if you have a little bit of discipline, and you stick to that. It's no longer a mystery. It no longer has to do with procrastination. It's just getting your butt in the chair and, and committing to the plan that you had created. And, and when things come up as they do in, in real life, then you adjust. But at least you sort, of know, you sort of know where you're headed and you have a path to get there. That's fantastic. Really good advice. Definitely agree with that. Um, how have you survived? So switching, <laughs> switching topics <laughs> a bit. How have you survived at least two full years of working with Mr. Zach Bohannon? I have no idea. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're coming up to, I think, two years now nearly of um, the Career Author podcast. Obviously, you guys have been working together for a bit longer before that. How did you go about finding the collaborator that stuck? Because obviously, you've worked with a lot of people over the years. What I, is it about yeah. Zach that, that brought you two together? Yeah, I have. And it's, a, it's one of the questions that we both get uh, so often, uh, whether you know at, at events or speaking engagements or, or online. We often hear, you know, I'd really like to collaborate, but... I don't know where to start. I don't know how to find somebody. I don't, you know, I don't know what to do. And uh, unfortunately, I don't have an easy answer for that or um, a hack that somebody can do that will, you know, get them a, a, a writing partner. Uh, you know, Zach, Zach reached out to me as a reader first, and he read a few of my books and said, "I really like your stuff," and started listening to the Horror Writers Podcast, which was the first one I launched uh, back in 2014, which is five years ago already. And uh, and our relationship just grew out of, out of that. And uh, we have a lot, you know, we have a, we have a lot in common. We have a lot of the, uh, similar interests. And but more importantly, and this is something we stress at events all the time, the most important thing about uh, being uh, a co-writer or collaborating with someone is you want to have similar life uh, aspirations or be in similar life stages. So if Zach was really hungry to leave his day job and I was a traditionally published author getting $100,000 advances, the, my motivation to work might be very different than, than Zach's at that point. So I think the fact that we were both sort of in our day jobs at the moment where we were thinking we don't want to do this anymore and we were starting to have a little bit of commercial success with our novels, uh, we were sort of in, uh, we were in the same boat there. And I think that made it tremendously uh, easier because we both understood what each other wanted. 
but it's really like trying to give dating advice. You know, <laughs> if someone says, <laughs> how do I find, you know, the, 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 the person I want to date? It's like, well, unfortunately, you got to go on a lot of bad dates first. And, and, and that, doesn't, that doesn't mean I have issues with any of my previous co-writers or collaborators, but, you know, you, you really do have to try uh, collaborating with a number of people. And, and maybe you'll find someone that's a good fit for you on the second or third, but, but chances are you're going to have a lot more failed collaborations than you will successful ones. Yeah, and like you say, it's just taking that risk and, and taking the plunge. Otherwise, you're never, never really going to learn from them. It's it's true. I mean, uh, it's very tempting in this industry and in, in this profession to just stay behind your monitor and uh, and type on the keyboard and and tell yourself that being social that being on social media is social and it's not. But you know, forcing yourself outside into the real world, especially to where other writers gather, whether that's something locally or a conference or a workshop, but uh, getting out there and interacting with other people, there's just no substitute for that. And how do you feel the Attitude Source collaboration have changed over the last few years? Well, I, I think thank you to uh, you know your your buddy and uh, and uh, great writer share alum Michael Anderley. I think that I think that's been changing. I mean, uh, M- Michael wasn't the first, obviously not the first to collaborate. Uh, you know, people have been collaborating for a long time, but uh, I think the tide has turned on that, and I think. Um, you know, there there may have been a time where collaborations were were looked down upon, or or they somehow didn't feel as literary, possibly. But uh, Zach and I, you know, we we both have backgrounds as musicians, and when you're in a band, it, it's by nature collaboration. You can't help it. Um, you know, you are collaborating with other artists. You're compromising. You're giving. You're taking. And we see that in movie production. We see that in serialized television. We see that in podcasting. So I think it was just natural that eventually the stigma, if there was one, um, would be lifted from uh, publishing as well. Yeah, I think one of the things that I discovered very early was you put you really need to put your ego aside because the minute you enter into that partnership, you're, you're no longer just yourself. And there, I've I've not been in personal collaborations with them myself, but I've seen a few people from the sidelines where it's definitely been a case of they've gone into a collaboration with an expectation of what they want to achieve based off of their, the ideas that they have for a book. So obviously writing a book is very personal and they hold that very clear. And when you get into a partnership with someone else, you do have to find that compromise. And sometimes that's where the clash can come from is people not quite being able to let go of their preconceived ideas to make something that might be a bit better in the long run. Oh, I totally agree. I mean, it's, you know, and you, it doesn't mean that you have to give up your, your soul, or it doesn't mean that you have to compromise to the point where you're not happy with the story you're telling. You just need to be very clear on what your expectations are going in. Uh, you know, this wasn't the case for Zach and I, uh, we, but if I felt very strongly about a story idea and I was going to co-write it, if there were elements of that story that were non-negotiables for me, I would tell Zach. I would say, you know, you can play with this character, we can change this setting, but this particular plot device, I, I, that has to be in there. And I think as long as you're communicating that kind of, those kinds of things up front, then you avoid the potential uh, you know, train wrecks that could occur when, when you butt heads creatively with another writer. And speaking of train wrecks, let's go into your events. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't mean that in a negative way. Uh, I was trying to use the train segue there. Oh, I, I realized like that. how negative that sounds. Um, <laughs> obviously, your events aren't, um, aren't train wrecks because you're, you're doing very well from them. And one thing, again, very, very selfishly, part of the reason that I've invited you on the podcast um, is I'm looking at sort of starting a few events myself quite locally for writers. And 
what I wanted to ask was, how did you get into the business of creating the events themselves? And um, yeah, let's start there. Well, how, yeah. how did you get into that business of starting the events? Uh, kicking and screaming. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I spent uh, 24, 25 years in education. I taught kindergartners how to read and I taught graduate students how to write and everything in between. And I, it was a very fulfilling uh, part of my life. Uh, very grateful for it. I have a master's in education. I'm, I love teaching. I love helping other people out. But I had reached, I had burnt out and I was ready to move on and do something else when I became a full-time writer. And for at least the first year, anytime Zach would mention anything about teaching or events or podcasting, I immediately shot it down. I'm like, I'm done with that. I'm a writer. I don't want to be a teacher anymore. And uh, it just so happened that when we were when we did the first trip to New Orleans with uh, Joanna Penn and Lindsay Broker, um, we we thoroughly enjoyed that experience. And we were sitting around afterwards at a great place in the French Quarter, having a, a beer and a burger, and and we were like, wow, wouldn't this be cool if we hosted this and, and did something like this for other people? And that would eventually become Authors on a Train. And even as we were doing that first Authors on a Train, which would have been 2017, I believe, fall of 2017, uh, even as we were doing that, I wasn't really sure if I wanted to kind of go back into that world of, of teaching, because that's really what events are. They're, they're teaching. And I got some very strong validation from the people who attended who absolutely loved it. Uh, Zach told me, he's like, man, you're a great teacher. You know, we, we should be doing more of this. And I think that's what eventually led us to start the Career Author Podcast. And then that's how the, the live events have grown. They, they are really, uh, and, and Zach as well. Zach is a teacher as well. He, he was a personal trainer for a number of years, and that's a different form of teaching. But um, it's deep in my blood. I, I love doing it. I think I realized that instead of continually running from it or pushing away, that I could embrace it. And I could combine that skill set with the one I have as a writer and publisher. And that's where you get these kind of uh, very unique, different events that we're very proud of. And what are the biggest highs of running those kind of events, as well as some of the biggest pitfalls in maybe more the organization rather than the actual event itself, if that makes sense? Yeah, it does. The The, the most challenging thing about events is is planning them remotely. <laughs> Uh, you know, I've done, I've spoken at the, my local, from my local library for a number of years. I've hosted writer events in Cleveland where I live. And, and that's, uh, that's where I always tell people to start. If you're, if you're thinking about, uh, teaching or hosting writer events, always start locally, always start small because the logistics involved when you're planning an event somewhere where you don't live are really challenging. And there's a, uh, there's a big financial investment involved. I mean, for every event, Zach and I are doing, uh, you know, we have to we have to put up thousands of dollars before we sell a ticket, and we're on the hook for that. So, uh, you know, you really have to you you have to examine your what level of risk you're willing to take, and also again back to project management, how organized are you? You know, if you are not a very organized person, and you're and you're setting up an event that's taking place on a different continent or across the continent, there's going to be some real challenges there. So I think that's that's the hardest part, and um, you know we're we're hosting we host events in New Orleans, um, we're hosting events in Seattle, in LA, in San Francisco, and we're thousands of miles away. So that's um, that's definitely a challenge. But I think for me, and I think I could speak for Zach, uh, the payoff is is the experience that you have with the other people. There's just no substitute for it. Uh, we have made some lifelong friendships 
with people who have come on these trips with us and and some of them who have who have gone on multiple trips or multiple events and um and there's just this moment where you can kind of it, it sounds cliche but you can see the light bulbs coming on for people and so at certain times and in different ways and I think that's what's always been so fulfilling for me as a teacher and now as someone who runs events and, and does client work is is seeing somebody move from, from one phase of their life to another. Uh, and, it's, and when it's around writing, it's even better. And how are you going about handling the career author summit? Because obviously that's a, an event that has a bit of a legacy attached to it and one that you're um, taking over the mantle from Jim and Brian. How are you approaching that? Because I, I can imagine that'll be quite different to some of the other events you have hosted. It is. It's and it's not the type of event that we that we really thrive in. And and I don't I don't say that with any sort of negativity. Uh, but but those of of your listeners who know what Zach and I are doing with our events, we tend to run these very small, intimate one-of-a-kind bucket list kind of events, whether it's Authors on the Train, Vampires of New Orleans, Sci-Fi in Seattle. Uh, you know, we're taking 12 to 15 writers. That's it. And, and that kind Which of thing, I love, by the way, just having uh, yeah. that, that small... Yeah, we love that too. You know, we're, we're not out to scale this. We're not out to make millions of dollars doing this. We just like working with a small group of people. If we can make a little bit of money to pay for the overhead and for our time, it's worth it. Uh, so we love those. But that means that uh, you know the Career Author Summit is a different beast. That's uh, 125 people. And what had happened was uh, Brian Cohen uh, decided that um, uh, he, he really didn't want to do the Sell More Book Show Summit anymore, and, which was totally understandable. He's got a million things going on, and he, he's going in 10 different directions at once. <laughs> but Zach and I thought like, you know, we the the two years that we had done it, it was such a great community, and we and it was so much fun. Even though it's outside of our, our sort of our sweet spot, we realized there was value in that, and and we didn't think it was right to kind of just let it go by the wayside. And so we we asked um, we asked Jim Kukrell if he wanted to kind of help us with it if we were going to rebrand it because we didn't want to brand it as a summer book show when Brian wasn't going to be involved. And and so we decided let's do the same thing. We'll move it to Nashville where Zach lives. We'll rebrand it as the Career Author uh, uh, Summit. We have Jim who is like an official part of that and Brian is going to come speak at it. So there were no bad blood or anything. It was a, it was a perfect transitional moment for us to sort of take the mantle from them uh, and sort of keep the spirit of the event uh, the same way it's been. And am I right in thinking that tickets for that are unfortunately sold out? They are already? unfortunately sold out. Yes. Okay. There's is there a, a wait, wait list. list that people can get on if, yeah, yeah, there's a wait list if people go and uh, go to the careerauthor.com and click on events, you'll see where you can get on the wait list because uh, you know, it is in May and it's it's only September as we record this and uh, there undoubtedly will be people who have uh, purchased a ticket and can't go and we don't do refunds and we don't facilitate that transaction, but what we would do is connect uh, the next person on the wait list with someone who wants to sell a ticket. Amazing. Um, one thing that I have, because I, I said to you before the show, and obviously you know this about me anyway, or I hope that I, <laughs> I listen to a lot of you anyway. Um, <laughs> twice a week, you're, you're in my earbuds with the writers well and with the career author. Um, so it's quite bizarre getting the chance again to talk to you because it kind of feels like we talk even though we don't. I mean, we chat in Slack, <laughs> but it's not quite the same as, you know, voice on voice. Right. Um, and one thing that I did hear from one of your recent episodes of um, the, the writers well was you in conversation and... I'm going to apologize for this in advance because I can't remember the third person. It was Rachel and another thriller author in a hotel room. Oh, uh, Sophie Littlefield. Sophie Littlefield. There yes. you go. 
Um, and I found it very interesting that you're looking at the minute at possible options of going into sort of a hybrid author and looking for some more traditional um, publishing deals. Are you able to give an update at all as to where you're at with that? And if if anything has happened with that still in the last sort of few months? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I went to Thriller Fest in July in New York City. And at Thriller Fest, they have a, a two-hour thing called Pitch Fest where authors can go in and uh, pitch agents and editors uh, manuscript. And uh, that's that's what I was doing. One of the things I was doing at Thriller Fest, and that was, uh, let's see, that was three months ago as we record this. And uh, I've received about three or four rejections so far. Uh, I'm expecting a lot more. Uh, that's just the, the, the nature of the game. But uh, out of those, out of the, I don't know, probably, I'm going to say 15 or 16 agents or editors requested either a partial or full manuscript uh, based on my pitch. That means that I still have around 10 to 12 of those that are still out. And, uh, and those, you know, when, when, a, uh, when an agent uh, asks for a read, whether it's a full or partial, it could take six to nine months depending on, you know, their backlog of the slush pile. So I, I'm, I have to be very patient, which means it's frustrating for me because I, I, I kind of want to know if I, if I have anything <laughs> or not. But uh, um, I, I expect over the next couple months they'll kind of slowly drip in. Um, hopefully one of them, one of those agents wants to give it a shot and sell it. And uh, if that happens, I'll, I'll be pretty excited. And if it doesn't, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. Fingers crossed for you. I mean, Thanks. it must be interesting being on that side of the coin because, I mean, I think it's fair to say you're, you, you've done very, very well for yourself with the indie publishing world. I mean, you've been in the business for a fair while. And to go from the mentality of sort of putting out the indie, putting out the indie, putting out the indie, to now tackling the traditional publishing world, what what caused that Um <laughs> I wouldn't say switch because obviously it's not an entire switch, but what what brought that on as a as, as something that you wanted to achieve? Yeah, it's purely ego. I'm not going to lie; yeah. <laughs> it's purely ego. I like I know uh, I know that I lose a lot of control. I know I won't make the same amount of money. I know it'll take a whole lot longer to publish. Uh, I know I'm giving up my rights forever plus 700 years and three goats and whatever else they roll <laughs> into the contract. Like I know all that. Uh, that's not that's not why I'm doing it. I. I kind of decided uh, after 10 years of publishing on my own, I had gotten to know Rachel's one of them and Sophie's another. I mean, I've gotten to know some great writers who have had uh, traditionally published books or have been hybrid authors. And part of me just wants to know if I can play that game. I, I want to know if I'm good enough in their eyes. And I know I don't need to have that validation, but uh, I want to try it. And, uh, you know, it's one book, it's, it's one manuscript. Uh, if it if it there's no interest, I'll still be able to do whatever I want with it. But part of me just wants to see if I can do it. Uh, I, I'm just there are a, a lot of things that pop into my head, and uh, like podcasting was one I'd never known what podcasting was, and I was like, I'm going to start a podcast. Why not? Because I want to see if I can. And so I think that's kind of the same attitude I'm having with this. I, I'm really trying to keep it in, in perspective. I had uh, I had one particular editor who I, I won't mention. I was really hoping she was going to purchase the manuscript because I think she would have been a great fit for me. And she passed on it, and I was really disappointed. And I woke up the next day and just got back to work. And uh, so I, I'm trying to keep it in perspective. I'm trying not to go too far on one, one side or the other, but it is purely vanity for me at this point. And how are you approaching actually researching the process or is there anything that you're doing 
differently with this book as opposed to how you would approach sort of the, the creation of an actual um, book that you know is going to go into? Have you done anything different with this book to approach a traditional publisher? I, in so much in that I did not cross the finish line with it. So I, in talking to Rachel, one of the things that uh, she told me when you're querying agents with a manuscript is that you want the manuscript, you, you want to do your best job that you possibly can, and you want it to be a clean clean manuscript. And uh, what that means is I, I sent it to my regular editor and I had her edit it for me as if I were going to publish it on my own. And then I stopped. So at that point, like I would normally do uh, you know, a few more revisions. I would hire a proofreader. I might get it in front of some beta readers. But for the uh, querying process, I didn't want the editor or the agent to feel like I had locked everything in stone and there was no place for them to have some input. So I was trying to walk that line between giving them something polished, but something that they could also mold into and and be part of the creative process. And was it just at the Thriller Fest that you um, pitched the the manuscripts or have you sort of gone out to other agents in other avenues as well? Not yet. And I'm not really sure if if I'll do do that or not. Hopefully I won't have to, but my my rationale was uh, I could take... um, a train ride for a relatively uh, cheap amount of money to New York City. I'd never been to Thriller Fest. Uh, I'm, I love thrillers and was kind of interested in that. And I thought, you know, in one afternoon session, I can get as much work done as if I were querying for six months. So I was going to go in there. And, and, and not only that, but it was better than querying because I was getting face-to-face in real life in front of these people. and uh, And I was able to... Uh, sort of condense or tighten that process because I didn't want to spend hours every day writing query letters and doing research on agents. I thought I will dedicate this one trip this entire weekend. I'll be all in on Thriller Fest, but then that's it. And it, and I don't have to worry about the querying process bleeding over into my other work. That's a very efficient way to do it. I think um, do you, uh, you probably, well, I don't know if you will know, but will other genres have something similar for them? I think so. Uh, I have not been to StokerCon. Um, I have not been to the Science Fiction Fantasy Writers uh, event. Um, I, I'm hoping to at some point, but I, I think there are those types of events, and I think they're not even necessarily uh, held by writers associations. I think there are other uh, book industry events, more in the traditional publishing world, where you can uh, you can pitch agents. And, uh, and so for me, that was a very uh, attractive because not only, like I said, it was going to save me a lot of time, maybe be much more efficient, but I felt like every time I pitched, my pitch got better. And I learned a lot just from that process, even if it had nothing to do with pitching a book, just being able to succinctly explain the core element of my story in, a, in 30 seconds or, or 60 seconds, I thought was really valuable. It's a perfect blurb. Yes, it, it is a yeah. perfect length of a blurb. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like I say, you're... That is a very efficient way to look at it. And one of the things um, from your most previous episode of the career author as we speak was you spoke a lot about the idea of opportunity cost and um, you seem very methodical about how you choose to spend your time on what you do. Since you're involved in so much stuff at the minute, how do you find that you do divide your time between your fiction, your nonfiction, your events, your podcasts? How do you manage that during a, a typical week? Uh, I'm, I'm. This comes back to, my, I think, my you know, my, my inclination to be a project manager and, and being able to manage things. I, 
I, I, I'm the type of person who likes to be involved in several things at a time. Um, I, if, if I go too long on one thing, I start to lose interest or uh, it's hard for me to pay attention. So I like to be able to, to, to jump around and, and work on different things, which is why we have, you know, retreats and podcasts and fiction and nonfiction. And, um, it took me, it probably took me a good year or so after I, be, I went full time to really embrace the idea that I don't have to work nine to five if I don't want to. I don't have to eat lunch at 12. I <laughs> don't have to chunk my, my day up into 60 minute increments. Like those are all artifacts of the corporate world and I'm no longer part of that. And it, it, you would think I would have realized that much sooner, but I didn't. And so now what I do is I chunk out big blocks of my days. And I can do this as a full-time writer. So I understand people who are not full-time. Uh, they don't have this luxury, but you can scale it down to fit whatever time you have. Uh, what I do is I dedicate certain days to certain tasks. So uh, Mondays are strictly for um, admin work, emails, client work, podcasting, uh, so, sort of the more reactionary types of things that I do. Tuesdays and Wednesdays are reserved entirely for what I consider to be deep work. So that is drafting, revisions, plotting, um, big idea generation. So I don't schedule any podcast interviews or client work on uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. Thursday, I have another admin day. And then Friday is like my catch-all day. Uh, Friday, I don't schedule anything. Um, I still work, but I work on whatever it is I want. Whatever I feel motivated to work on, that's what I do Friday. And it, what's nice about doing it that way is I'm guilt-free throughout the week. I'm not think, I don't have anything hanging over my head thinking like, wow, I really got to get back to that chapter or I really have to do that podcast post-production because I've already systematized it and so that it occurs on a certain day and that's all I do that day. And I've been doing that for about six months now and, and my productivity has just gone through the roof after doing that. Okay. Yeah, I'm definitely still in those early stages because I've been full-time now for four months. Um, and I'm still definitely in the stages of trying to work out what recipe works best for me in terms of, of getting the workload done. And I mean, summer doesn't help anyway because my, my son's four going on five and starts uh, yeah. school this week. So yep. <laughs> times will change. I know that Zach's suffering from this as well with uh, with his daughter. Um, but yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of trial and error involved um, and something that I know you're definitely not scared to do is sort of think outside the box. And like you say, throw off the, throw off the corporate shackles and uh, <laughs> try something a bit different. Um, so it's interesting to see that that works for you because I find that I'm very much a case of if I've got a project that I'm prioritizing is at the front of my mind, that's where I'll put the big chunks of my work every day. And right. then everything else just seems to automatically very much fall by the wayside. And I get very nose into that project, but I don't know. I might have to uh, give some of your methods to try and see if see if it helps with, well, with some of my Yeah, I mean, I, again, it's really whatever works for you. You know, I, I think for me, one one of the things I was realizing was when I, when I was trying to plan too many different types of activities in the same day, I was there was a major switching cost involved. Yes. So every like, if I were to go from first drafting to email, and then back to first drafting, I would lose. And, and this is scientifically proven, y your brain has to switch and it has to readjust. And sometimes, especially with the deep work or the, the highly creative work, it can take 
you know, a half an hour to kind of get back into that space. And when you're switching tasks five or six or seven or eight times a day, you're losing a lot of brain power in, in those, those switches. So I, that's why for me, I decided like, okay, I'm just going to batch all the same type of stuff on one day so that I'm not forcing my brain to make those really big leaps. Yeah, I did find it if I, because at one point I was trying to split my day 50-50 between two projects I'm working on. And it, it was exactly that. I just, once I'd finished doing the first one, I then couldn't get into the second one sort of fast enough. And I was losing a lot of, a lot of the words that I would normally get done right. just, just in switching over. So now I just, I'll block one until I'm done and then I'll do the next one and, um, and go ahead that way. And one of the things that, I, I mean, I've heard you mention a few times that you, you don't really like, um, goals or targets or anything <laughs> that can kind of potentially cause disappointment down the line. And I completely get it. It, it makes um, complete sense. The idea that if you say you're going to do 5,000 words in a day and you hit 4,900, that seems a failure when it's really not. Yeah. Um, but what I'm curious about is, do you have sort of milestones that you set? How far into the future do you look with your projects? Um, and how do you monitor the things that you want to achieve? Yeah, you know, it's it's not entirely accurate when I say I hate goals or I don't have goals. I I, I think what I what I don't do is I don't I don't uh, manage goals. I don't set goals and mark progress. For, for me, goals are much more broad. Um, uh, you know, like I, I guess you could say that having the ability to manage my own time and to make a living doing it, technically, that's a goal. But really what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to achieve a, a, a certain lifestyle and I just want it to be that. Like I don't, there's not like a finish line, you know, there's not sort of a, there's not a prize when I get there. I think that's the difference in the way goals are, are talked about these days around productivity. And I go back to, to James Clear, Atomic Habits. I think he's a, you know, he, he's got it right, which is if you, if you build the system and you develop those habits, then instead of worrying about goals, um, you you just begin to live whatever system or habit you create, and and that's really where my mindset is. I'm I'm much more about uh, I'm not necessarily interested in in you know okay I'm I need to publish six books this year. If I'm getting in the chair and I'm working on something every day and I'm giving it my best honest effort and I know that, then the results are going to come, and I don't worry too much about them. Perfect. So what's next for Jathorn? What's next? Well. Uh, Zach and I are cracking the seal on a nine-book series, which is going to be the biggest, most ambitious thing we've ever tried. Uh, so that is that is getting off the ground as we speak, and uh, we're hoping that maybe by the end of this year or early next year, we're going to have some things uh, published. That, that's a big one. And um, I also uh, am really sort of uh, embracing, the, again, this idea of being a teacher, and, and that's okay and that I can help people. And so I have <laughs> um, a few initiatives in 2020 that are um, not formed, fully formed enough that I can talk about yet, but uh, are going to push more into that. And I'm going to be more available to, to more people in, in more ways. And I'm really excited about that because I think once I stopped fighting it, uh, I really began to enjoy that, that type of work even more. Fantastic. Okay, so now I've got a couple of questions from our patrons over at patreon.com forward slash great writers share. Um, so we've got a few people over there who are able to ask the guest questions every week. And we've got three questions lined up for you now. Um, are you happy to answer these? Oh, absolutely. No. <laughs> that would be so awkward. Um, the, so the first question is from John Cronshaw, who says, what is the value of podcasting and do you find it's better for engaging readers or as a tool for networking and expanding your author services? 
Wow, great question. I almost feel like you are uh, way better qualified than I am to answer that one. Uh, you know, I, I think the... Um, I haven't had, I haven't tried very hard, but I haven't had much luck in developing podcast content for readers of genre fiction. I think that's where uh, Other Stories is really kind of uh, got it right. You guys are doing great stuff with that. I think for me, the podcasting is more about being a positive voice in the community, helping out um, other writers. I mean, I've, uh, I've received so much help from so many people over the past 10 years that I feel this very strong responsibility to, to pay it forward and to, and to turn around and help other people who uh, you know, might be in a similar situation either now or a few years from now. And, uh, and podcasting is really one of those mediums. You've mentioned it a few times. You know, I'm in your ear twice a week. And I think when you're podcasting on a regular basis, there's a trust that's developed and people get to know you. And Zach and I will have people come up to us at, you know, at the summits or the retreats or workshops, and, and they just launch into a conversation and start talking to us like we're old friends. And we love that. <laughs> and, you know, it's because they, they feel like they know us. So I think if you have any aspirations about being a voice in the community, a helpful voice, or if you have secondary business uh, revenue streams, like, you know, if you do editing or graphic design or you're a book doctor, I think any of those sort of tangential uh, activities within the industry besides just the writing, I think podcasting can really serve that audience well. Yeah. And I think I'll jump in um, a little bit just to touch on what you were alluding to with the other stories um, where so for, for myself and Luke, when we started the story studio, that was very much, we knew what the goal was for that. And for that, that was more a case of the networking side of it, meeting other people and, and very similar to what I'm, I'm doing now. And obviously um, some of the stuff that you've done in the past is meeting, is meeting new people. One thing that I will say for the other stories is it's very difficult to get an audience who is used to a certain medium into another medium. Mm. Um, so we found that while we do get an exceptional amount of downloads on the other stories, and it's something that we're, um, incredibly grateful for. I mean, we're coming up to four million downloads wow. that we'll probably hit in the next few months, That's which awesome, is, yeah, man. yeah. It's it's very, very humbling considering it started off as nothing more than four guys just wanting to to write stories. <laughs> um, but actually transferring that over into physical paperback or ebook readers um, is something that we're still trying to crack. I mean, we get people who become aware of our stuff and and maybe unbeknownst to us down, somewhere down the line they'll buy one of our books but in in active efforts to push people over to fiction it's been a bit of a struggle even with some of our audiobooks um oh i was gonna we, ask you if you had any bleed in, from your audiobooks yeah well i mean we've only got one audiobook in uh, the rot series at the minute um and none of our other stuff really is in audio it's something mm. that we're we're looking at but i think potentially once we've got a few more it'll be interesting to see if they do then um and we've spoken about potentially trying to do uh, almost audiobook chapters within a podcast that links to the other stuff. We've got a few different ways to, to play around with it, but it's actually, yeah, it seems to be a lot harder than, than we thought. And part of why I think that is, is that the other stories is 20 minute rounded. You get a story and that's it. Whereas obviously if it's longer form, then that takes a bit more commitment to people over time. And I don't know, I think the, the key for the other stories is people like that they're into a horror story, then they're out. So, yep. That's true. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, so that's my that's my two cents. Uh, question from Ian J. Middleton: Have you got any advice for writing horror in a series? Oh, that's a that's a tough one, Ian. Um, I I didn't have much luck. I, I tried a few. I tried a few times. Um, I I mean, I'm sure there are exceptions, but I I feel like the horror reader expectation is that uh, you're going to tell really good standalone 
story. And I think part of that is it's hard to it's hard to transfer the force of antagonism across several books for horror because horror is so intense. Um, you usually have some type of, of monster or creature and, uh, and to sort of, yes, to, to stretch that out over, over multiple books is, it's really hard. Uh, if it's serialized, if it's not serialized, uh, you know, like a goosebumps would be a good example, right? Um, you know, goosebumps, there's, I don't know how many, 300 some books, um, you know, that Stein has, like, I think that works, but if, if you're talking, uh, genre fiction, sort of adult horror novels, it's hard. Um, so Ian, if you, if you crack that nut, let us know. I was actually going to, uh, bring up goosebumps as a bit of a, an additional uh. mini question for you. Cause I was going to say, what, what was the secret source for that? Cause obviously that's horror, but yeah, that'll be more in the branding of the actual series itself rather than the actual connectivity of the, the stories. It is. And I was really fortunate to uh, sit in a room and listen to R.L. Stein on a, on a panel at Thriller Fest uh, oh, wow. recently. And he's very, uh, he's got the self-deprecating humor. I mean, he's one of the most successful writers of our time. I mean, the guy's sold millions and millions of books and uh, you know, it, for him, it's, it's kind of formulaic, you know, he, he basically went through the process of what it takes to create a Goosebumps book. He knows what the kids want and he delivers. And, you know, there are certain series where he have, he has the same characters show up and there are certain series where they don't. And, uh, so I, I would say, you know, if you're really interested in that, Ian, you, if you have a subscription to Masterclass, the R.L. Stein Masterclass is phenomenal. Um, even if you're not writing, um, you know, uh, young, young adult or middle grade horror, if you just want to understand how to have that kind of mass appeal and do it in a horror genre, I would highly recommend that masterclass. Fantastic. And another one from John Cronshaw. What tips do you have for marketing to an audience such as post-apocalyptic who just want to be left alone and have no interest in engaging with authors? <laughs> Seems quite topical. <laughs> oh, that is so great. Yeah, that's, that's the... Uh, that's what Zach and I have been wrestling with for a, a few years now, uh, John. That that is exactly what we're what we're discovering, and, and I think that's a that's a pretty stereotypical broad brush. But I think for the most part, we're finding that there are certain uh, genre readers who have certain behaviors. Romance readers love to like get in Facebook groups and talk to each other and talk to authors, and they're and they're very communicative. I think our experience with post-apoc and dystopian is just that. I, I think that they. Uh, they just want to read. They enjoy that process, and they don't necessarily want to uh, email the author and be in a Facebook Live group. And you know, it's just—it's just not. It doesn't seem to be part of the of the makeup of that behavior. So I think um, I wish there was a, a great solution for that. Unfortunately, there I, I, there isn't. And and what we're doing right now is we are just trying to create more content. We're just trying to create more books and. And hoping that if those readers really enjoy what we're doing, uh, they'll go and buy more, even if we never hear from them. Yeah, spot on. I think that's a brilliant answer. I mean, I am um, obviously writing a very similar um, genre to yourself, and I I have exactly the same issue with struggling to get people to actually reach back out because you spend a lot of time as an author trying to reach out to the audience on the hope that you'll get someone to sort of bite on the hook and and at least get a bit of feedback to know that what you're what you're doing is resonating with someone, but if they're reading the books, then perhaps that's that's enough for some people. Right. Um, fantastic. So now that's all the patron questions. Um, let's fire into our quick fire round. Uh, this Ten is, quick this questions. Scares me. 
<laughs> I love this bit. I want to, uh, at some point in the future, I'd love to get some sort of harmonic situation going on <laughs> and just record people's heartbeats as we get to this point. Um, <laughs> but 10 questions as fast as you can. Uh, if you do struggle, feel free to pass. It's absolutely fine. We'll just cut half the interview. Um, <laughs> are you ready? I, no, but let's do it anyways. <laughs> okay. Who's your favorite superhero? The Hulk. The world has ended. You can have one item. What is it? A knife. Boats, cars, or planes? Uh, cars. Who's your favorite character you've ever created? <laughs> um, the Casket Girls. If you could collaborate with anyone, who would it be? Stephen King. What one book would you recommend to a budding writer and why? Aristotle's Poetics, because if it's good enough for Aaron Sorkin, it's good enough for all of us. Favorite kind of fish? Salmon. How many books have you written? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> When's Zach's birthday? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and just to finish off, do you have any pets? I do not. Fantastic. Cool. There you go. Wasn't too I bad. I survived. All right. You survived. Reached the other side. You, you now got on the alumni wall. And we'll put your picture up. Excellent. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, so just to sign off then, uh, where can our listeners find out more about yourself and your work and everything you've got going on? Yeah, the, the easiest thing to do if you want to know about me is go to theauthorlife.com. That's sort of my personal home on, on the internet and you can get to everything else through that. And if you're interested in what Zach and I are doing, that's moltenuniversemedia.com. Perfect. Well, thank you very much for entertaining me for the last hour, Jay. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, man. It's always great to talk to you. As I said, I, uh, I'm i a big fan of what you and Luke uh, do over there. And uh, you, you guys are just really good guys. And uh, we, need, we need more good people in the industry. So I'm always happy to, to chat with you. Appreciate it. And we'll have to sort of actually seeing each other in real life at some point. Yeah, that's going to happen. It'll definitely That'll happen. That'll happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. So thank you very much for listening. And we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Great Writer Share podcast. Next week, we'll be talking to urban fantasy writer, Ramey Vance. Don't forget, you can get early access to every episode of the Great Writer Share podcast and the chance to ask upcoming guests any of your questions just by becoming a patron of the show. All you need to do is visit www.patreon.com forward slash great writers share and support and share the show for as little as $1 a month. One more time, that's www.patreon.com forward slash great writers share. Until next time. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, y'all, this is Kenya, creative director and co-founder of Domino Sound. And this is Alexandra De Palma, executive producer and co-founder of Domino Sound. And we're a queer, disabled, Black woman-owned podcast production company and network creating authentic, inclusive, provocative content. We just launched Domino Presents, which is a new series of special audio projects. The premiere episode features the founders of Poppy Juice, the queer art collective throwing the hottest parties in New York City and around the world. We also recommend The Cheat Code, our hit 10-episode audio soap opera surrounding a love affair. Think Love and Hip Hop meets The Affair meets The Sopranos. Follow us on IG at Domino Sound Co to keep up. 
and listen to our shows on the ACAST app or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Domino Sound. ACAST, 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 ACAST recommends. recommends.